Welcome to New Teacher Talk. Are you a new teacher in an urban, suburban, or rural school? We're here to support you. This podcast channel is purposely designed to help those who are new to teaching. We talk about the most common challenges that educators experience, and you will find a community of support through this channel and our associated webpage, newteachersguide.org. We're the hosts for New Teacher Talk. I'm Dr. Anna. My passion is supporting teachers as they establish and expand their practice. I'm a board certified early childhood generalist. And I'm Dr. Beth, former high school band director and current educator who is fanatic about supporting new teachers. If you're listening to this podcast, either you are or will be a new teacher in the near future, or for others, you might be a new teacher mentor or induction coordinator. It's no secret that becoming a teacher and being successful is a challenge. One of those major challenges is classroom setup and management. We have three seasoned educators as our guests today to talk about that very topic. Allison Krasnow, Christine Beardsley, and Jesse Kraft. Thank you for being here. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself, Allison, and why the topic of classroom setup and management is so important to you? I'm about to begin my 24th year in education. I'm an assistant principal at Alameda High School just outside of Oakland, California. Uh, But I've been an elementary school Spanish bilingual teacher, a middle school math teacher, and I've overseen instructional technology for an urban district over the last two decades. And I would say that both as a classroom teacher and as an administrator, I believe that relationships are the single most important factor in students' success in school. Students need to believe that they can be successful in any teacher's class. They need to know that their teachers believe in them. And additionally, students need to feel safe and respected by both their teachers and their classmates. So classroom setup and management plays such an important role in creating and sustaining these kinds of deep and trusting relationships. So the topic is just so, so important to all the work that I do. Thanks, Allison. Christine? Hi, my name's Christine Beardsley. I'm a 21-year veteran and certified reading specialist. My experience uh, includes kindergarten through fourth grade. And I find that classroom management is, is really the key for everything working well in your room. Definitely building relationships with the students is the most important thing you will ever do. Uh, understanding their interests, their strengths, their weaknesses, how they learn best, and maintaining those positive relationships throughout the years where they feel respected, safe, and valued for who they are is truly key. I've found through my experience that having this true understanding of each of my students also helps to drive my day-to-day instruction. This helps me assist in meeting the diverse learning needs of my classroom and also helps me maintain student interest. Thank you, Christine. Jesse, would you weigh in? Uh, Jesse Kraft. I am the principal of Coates Elementary School in Northern Virginia, and I am entering my 26th year in education. Classroom management is an incredibly important topic. It's, it's fun to talk to people who are passionate about this and see the continued incredible importance of this skill set for not just new teachers, but experienced teachers as well. Classroom management stands out to me as something that is of paramount importance because if you're a new teacher, most of what you're dreaming to do with your students, it's all going to fall apart if you can't manage the class. 
And so it's this foundational skill that is going to really set up all of your instructional strategies for success. That's not just true for beginning teachers, but also experienced teachers who endeavor to change up their instructional delivery to to make their classroom a great experience for kids. If you don't have systems in place, if you're not consistently making sure that they work properly, not only will the class not be safe, um, you're you're not going to get the learning outcomes you want. So this is a topic that is important when you're a new teacher, but also your entire career of teaching. That's so true. Preparing the classroom usually takes a lot of time. What do you believe new teachers need to consider when they organize their classroom space? Christine? I think a very important element of the classroom setup would be to make sure that the materials are easy for students to access. Jesse, what about yourself? What advice do you give new teachers and what they should consider when they organize their classroom space? Well, I would hope that teachers focus on, I guess, the utility of it, right? Like your room arrangement is going to, it's going to be what it is so that you can actually use it for instructional purposes. So I would advise teachers to resist trying to like over Pinterest your classroom. It's not so much the look of it as much as the function of it. You want that to work so that you can, uh, as the teacher, supervise your kids properly and utilize the space so that you get to proper learning outcomes. I like these first two responses. Let's take it to the third person here. Allison, what do you suggest new teachers need to consider when they organize their classroom space? Well, I love what both Christine and Jesse said, and they both have an elementary focus and experience. And I've spent more of my time in secondary, and I actually would say the exact same thing, which is, I think, really important to note. But the first thing I think about when setting up a new classroom is how I want students interacting with one another. So I'm not thinking about, you know, the Pinterest look on the walls, and really thinking about like, how do I want students interacting with each other? And how do I want them interacting with me? And so once I have that vision in my head, I think about then where should students' desks be, where I'm going to stand when I'm doing direct instruction, what my flow will be as I move around the room, what tools do I need, what tools do students need. Once I kind of lock in, like, where do I want the locations of desks to be, I then think about the rest. I think about how are students going to get supplies? How will they get to the pencil sharpener? Um, How will they get scratch paper for math? How will they get a laptop? How will they get scissors? How will they work on an individual whiteboard? And I spend a ton of time just walking around the room, just tweaking things. I'll sit down in different desks around the room from different perspectives, see what a student would see. And so I really want to like feel it from a student's perspective and keep all those things in mind as I'm kind of tweaking where everything is going to be. One great thing about our guests today is that they do represent such a wide range of levels. That's also one of the benefits of the book, The New Teacher's Guide, is that you'll get advice from those at the early childhood, elementary, middle, and high school levels. You've talked about a lot of the things to consider. In your own experience, what is the one thing that new teachers might overlook when they're preparing their classroom setup? Jesse? So one thing... I've seen over the years, sometimes a a classroom setup that I think looks cool, but it doesn't work out the way that the teachers plan. One thing that teachers need to be mindful of is not just the student experience. You know, can they get to the things that they need? Is there a flow for kids? But is there also a flow for and a pathway for the teacher to get to any space in that room very quickly if they need to? I'm coming at this from an elementary school experience. A lot of the instructional delivery is through like the workshop model, kids doing a lot of things independently, 
small group time, usually with the teacher in a certain part of the room. One of the common things that I see is sometimes teachers will set up the student desks in such a way that it almost creates barriers for the teacher to get to another part of the room quickly to just be in proximity with the kids or to solve a problem or for instructional impact. That room needs to work out for you as the teacher first and foremost so that you can really command that space and be in charge and, and use it. All the what if questions that Allison mentioned before, incredibly important. The only thing I would piggyback onto that is think about how you as the teacher can navigate that space easily as well. Allison, what are your thoughts here? I so agree, Jesse, with, with what you just said. And depending on what grade you're teaching or if you're secondary, what subject you're teaching as well, the way that you as the teacher and kids are going to move in that room is very different, right? An elementary classroom most likely has a rug and a space for kids to gather. Secondary, not so common. And so really thinking about how will kids get from one space to another? And then like Jesse said, like, how will you get from one space to another? I remember my uh, fifth grade classroom that I was in once where there was this really cozy like reading nook where kids could go. It was a fifth grade when they had um, silent reading, but the teacher couldn't see there was a bookshelf like leaning behind a couch to the back of a couch. And when kids sat on that couch, the teacher couldn't see those kids. And so you really want to think about like, how can I see all my students all the time? Um, you know, with all the different things that are going on in my classroom. And for me, the, the one piece of advice I would have in terms of that is to really test it all out. Don't set up your classroom at 10 p.m. the night before school starts, um, or don't tweak it and make some huge change right at the very last second. Really try it out. Try it out as a teacher. Think through what are all the things I will do as a teacher in a typical class day and walk through it, like literally walk through it and do those things and make sure the flow really works. What are all the things students need to do in the course of a, you know, a typical school day. And kids are really different sizes. Will everyone feel comfortable? Physically walk through it, physically try it out. And that's where you can find out what is working and also what won't work and what needs to be tweaked. Thanks, Allison. Christine, what do you have to add to this idea? To this I think point? Allison and Jesse really nailed it. Um, so I'm going to talk about something that some new teachers might overlook in terms of classroom management, if that's okay. Certainly. So I've found throughout the years that developing the classroom rules together as a team with teacher and students um, is really helpful and that it fosters that community of mutual respect and, and rapport. And having these classroom rules developed and, you know, displayed prominently in your room, keeping them simple and stating them in the, in the positive is really effective. And just recently, I've had students sign a contract that shows that they have read the rules and really understand what's expected of them. But in turn, what I found is equally important is letting the parents and students know what they can expect of you as their teacher. As part of the contract, I also send home a contract stating exactly what they can expect of me. And I find that that's had helped to build respect and rapport for one another. Thank you. That, that's a great idea to have that contract. And I always say that you need to consider that triad of success of the parent, the teacher, and the student. And when everyone has an equal opportunity to be involved and to understand, the experience for the student is usually much more positive. Exactly. Let's talk about handwritten plans or electronic plans. Which, which one do you prefer, Jesse? handwritten or electronic? I, I think the most important thing is that any teacher, whether you're new or, or a veteran, have a plan 
that is very clear to you in your mind and has a simplicity to it that you can stick to it, right? And you convert that plan to kid language so that your kids understand it. As far as, uh, I guess, the writing of the plan, kids, students are going to need something to remind them of the rules, the expectation, the procedure, all these things that are part of like the classroom management uh, wheelhouse. Kids are going to need anchor charts and prompts to, to remember these things. For me, if I were to come into a new teacher's classroom, the evidence that they have a plan for classroom management would come through in rules posted or the steps in a commonly used procedure being posted for kids in kid-friendly language and would be referred to as by the teacher after they've explicitly taught it multiple times. And you get to the point where students would refer to that written sequence, that procedure, even when the teacher's not there to remind them. And in time, they don't need it anymore. Eventually, you want things to operate with a certain level of automaticity. Kids just know this is the habit in Mrs. Smith's classroom. This is how we act. This is how we do this particular thing. But to get there, the plan needs to be clear enough that when it's explicitly taught and the leave behind is something like anchor charts, room cues, things that kind of keep them going. Uh, again, my original point on that is just keep it simple. I, I think one of the struggles, whether you're scripting a plan out or or you're kind of like operating it in your mind, I, I see a lot of teachers overcomplicate their systems and their expectations, and that's never good for students. Like, what do we do in this situation? How do we act in this situation? Do I raise my hand before speaking or do I just call out in certain times? What are those certain times? If you're not extremely clear and simple with what you want for certain things, the kids aren't going to know what to do and you're not going to be consistent about managing that expectations. Whether you write it down or not, I think the bottom line is keep it simple and leave enough guidance for kids to follow that rule and do it consistently themselves. What about you, Allison, from a secondary perspective, handwritten plans or electronic plans? I guess my first response would be you have to do what works for you. There's no point in having like a fancy electronic plan book that you then never open. <laughs> and so the most important thing is to do what you're going to use and to do what's going to be meaningful for you. I've done both, but at this point, I so often use online resources in class that I use an electronic lesson plan book because I can link to a slideshow that I made. I can link to a video clip. I can link to online and manipulatives that I have on my LCD projector. And I love that I can copy and paste and edit those lessons for another class period because a secondary, we have five class periods we teach or use again for next year students and copy, paste, and edit. I actually use something, I'll suggest what I use. I use something called planbookedu.com. It's just $25 a year and it's honestly worth every penny because I have my lesson plan books from the last 10 years. And I feel like a piece of management that relates to lesson plans is your transitions. You know, if you're going to read a story on the rug, how are students going to get off the rug and back to their seats? And really thinking through those kinds of details of transitions. And as you think about those in lesson plans, I enjoy having that in an electronic format because then when I look back and think, oh, how did I do that first day of school where we came to the rug and we did this read aloud and then brainstormed what we wanted our class rules or guidelines to be, I can go back and remember those finer details of the transitions that I wove into my lesson plans. I'm not familiar with that resource, so thanks for sharing it. I know our listeners will appreciate that as well. What about you, Christine? What's your preference for handwritten plans or electronic plans? If I'm going to be completely honest, um, I've used both and still continue to use both. 
My district has an electronic program for writing the plans, but I also have a daily planner that I like to use for reflection. And, you know, if I come across any additional resources that would enhance a lesson, then I definitely make notations there. But honestly, whatever way works best for you is, is definitely what you should stick with. When it comes to classroom management, different parts of the year bring different challenges. How should new teachers develop a management plan that carries along throughout the whole entire year? Is that possible? Christine, would you weigh in on that? I think it's definitely possible. Uh, It does not happen overnight. It takes very deliberate planning. And the most important things you can do as not even a new teacher, but any educator is to establish your consistent classroom procedures and routines from the very beginning. Just a few examples that teachers need to think about uh, how they're going to line up for lunch or specials. How are they to participate in group lessons or handle their classroom materials? evacuate during a fire drill. Just some of these you know, different things that teachers have to think about. But being consistent definitely will help students internalize these procedures, which will in turn you know, help your school day run smoothly. Thank you. Allison, could you approach that from a middle school, high school approach? I think that many things will stay the same. So you need to spend a lot of time thinking about your classroom management you know, prior to school starting and making a plan. But the truth is that it's really important to go into the school year knowing that you need to always be reflective and ready to learn and change when something isn't working. Things just aren't going to work the way that you thought they would. Um, That's true for me when I was in my 22nd year of teaching as much as it is for a first year teacher. For secondary, I might have one really tough class period where I realize like, oh, I need to do things a little bit differently for my other classes. Or I might find in November that I have one class period that's super, super quiet and I can't get anyone to speak up. And so I need to really rethink like how we come together as a class and, you know, how am I going to work on this? So for me, though, when I think about classroom management, like in the summer to prepare for the year, I kind of visualize like, what do I want my class to feel like around March? In March, things are really humming. Um, the class like is, you know, feels really amazing. Kids are really working together well, it all flows. And so I think about like, what do I want to see and feel and hear as I'm teaching, as I'm walking around the room, like in March. And then I kind of backwards map and think about what are the most fundamental parts of that scenario I just visualized that we need to work on day one in school. What do we need to work on throughout the first month? And I sort of think for me, it's two big things that I'm thinking about. One is how to have my classroom be, I call it, I'm a self, this is a self-service classroom. Um, There's systems for getting all the tools and materials that you need without having to ask me. So I think about what kind of routines do we need to practice and have in place for it to be that kind of self-service classroom. And then I think about how I want students to treat me and treat each other. And then we, we practice that a lot the first month of school. And then we return and practice that later through the year when things feel kind of, they're getting a little squeaky and we need to return to it. Thank you. Jesse. from the principal's standpoint, how do you see management evolving over the course of the school year? The same management plan that you have at the beginning of the year, can it be used throughout the entire year successfully? The answer is yes. But you, you have to, I guess, get over ourselves as teachers sometimes to make it work. Uh, let me explain what I mean. So beginning of the year, when your students come in and they're new to you, there is a lot of teachers providing explicit modeling explicit teaching of their expectations. 
every system they have for how they want their classroom to operate to the point where we'll get kids up and we'll rehearse, you know, how we get supplies, how we pass out papers, how we transition from the carpet to independent work at your desk, all those things. And we're, we're like mentally prepared as teachers to invest that non-instructional time into teaching those things really clearly because we know it'll pay off, right? And we'll reteach it a bunch of times in the first weeks of school. And we do that because it's an investment. And we expect that we're going to get something out of it for the whole rest of the year. Of course, the year is going to get funny, right? Uh, December, right before winter break, there's probably going to be an emotional time frame where a lot of kids, colleagues, parents hit a low point. You see that uh, in a lot of places. Right before in the lead up to spring break, there's probably going to be some coming apart, coming unhinged, and we need to tighten things back up. And end of the school year brings a certain level of excitement and emotion that can really make things come apart as well. What we try and suggest to our teachers at my school is let's anticipate these parts of the years. It's no surprise that things are going to come a little bit undone at key points in the year. And the answer is not always to overhaul your expectations or your procedures or your systems. The answer is usually go back and do what you did back in the fall when you wanted to teach your expectations. Actually, like, teach them again. Get back into explicit modeling, reteaching at those key times I just mentioned. Teaching works. It just takes time, right? Like, but we know it works, so do it. The other suggestion that we give to teachers when they buy into the fact that, you know, my only way out of this to get my kids to tighten up and stop getting in trouble in the lead up to winter break or spring break, end of the year, times we're mentioning, is not just to, like, buy into the the fact that I need to reteach this, but also try and withhold the judgment and the frustration you feel like it's really easy to go negative on your kids and think, you know, you guys should know this. We went over this a hundred times back in August and September. I'm over. Don't go there. Keep it matter of fact in your approach and just reteach it. Be ready to reinforce when I get it done right and enjoy the benefits of them getting it done. You know, in real life, even when we've been routinized to do something, we come apart sometimes too and need to be reminded and rediscipline ourselves for doing that thing right again. And so it is with our students. So yeah, you can kind of stick to the same plan, the same moves, the same systems. You just have to be ready to reteach them when <laughs> circumstances dictate you need to reteach them. Just remove your own emotion from it. I know there's not a lot of beginning teachers listening to this podcast. You know, consistency is key. And a lot of, I think, what Christine and Allison and I have been saying throughout, it really does come back to like consistently following through and, and, and managing your class the way that you had planned for. When you're a new teacher, your plan is probably going to change. You just don't know enough and have that experience under your belt to be confident that the first set of like classroom management, I guess, style expectations you put on your students are going to be the right ones. So you do have permission to change things up, everything from room arrangement to a procedure to uh, consequences matched to certain misbehaviors. Be careful, you don't always throw out the baby with the bathwater though. At the end of the day, it really comes down to teaching and modeling it, reteaching it as necessary to get to the desired outcome. So yeah, consistency is the key, but when you're new, you probably will explore some things and that can be okay. Just don't radically overhaul things every week because kids will, I think, get lost. It's also important to be thinking ahead what's coming that I can plan for rather than to react to. One of the benefits of today's podcast guests is that they're speaking from 
gosh, years of experience, but their advice is just practical, right? And these podcasts are actually an extension to the book, The New Teacher's Guide to Overcoming Common Challenges, which each of them contributed to. What's nice about the book, kind of like the advice you're hearing today, is that information can be absorbed pretty quickly. And the book does that. The articles, and I have to be careful because they're articles, but they're pithy, but purposeful. They kind of get to the point. And more importantly, they each have a downloadable resource that new teachers can get now and they can modify and use for their own classroom. And so I want to ask each of you, what did you write about and how can new teachers use the downloadable resource you created? Allison? In the book, I wrote about how I make custom stickers and how I use them as part of my classroom management. And the essay in the book uh, explains exactly like the the tech side of it, what website I use and how I design them and how I do them. So I won't address that here. But basically, I think about aspects of classroom management that um, what are things that you could hear yourself saying over and over to a kid or to a group of kids. And then I just made those kinds of phrases into fun stickers. So for example, sometimes I, again, I teach secondary. So this happens more, I think there, but it happens in elementary as well. A kid who's disappointed with how they did on an assignment, you pass it back and they tear it up and throw it in a million pieces on the floor because they're mad about you know how they did on a test or an assignment. So I have a sticker that says, I know you worked really hard on this and hope to do better. I still think you're awesome. If I see that happening, right, I'm passing out the quizzes that we took yesterday in math class. I know somebody is going to have like a big outburst about it. Once I know my students, I can probably anticipate who those kids or that kid will be. But what I do is, so while I'm passing out the quizzes, I have a few of those stickers in my back pocket. I just, if I see someone doing that, I stick the sticker either on the back of their hand or on their arm. I don't say a word. I don't have any emotional reaction. I just stick a sticker as I'm passing things out on their hand or maybe on their arm. And I carry on with what I'm doing. I don't break my stride. I just keep passing out those quizzes to my class. Kids love receiving these stickers. I have stickers with messages about positive things that I want to just like remind kids that I noticed. I have stickers about negative things that I want them to correct. Regardless of the message on the sticker, I always act the same way. I don't have emotion. I just stick it on their hand. I walk away. If you teach middle or high school, you're I'm probably thinking like there is no way teenagers would, you know, they're going to think that's the stupidest thing. Um, I'm here to tell you that kids of all ages love receiving the stickers, especially older kids. They love just keeping them stuck on their bodies. Like they'll go to the next class with like a sticker on their hand. They probably will move it to their cheek at some point. And it just feels more playful than if I put a sticker on a piece of paper, or even if I just said the words, it feels more playful. And I think they just appreciate that in the silent message that they get from it. By looking at that article, or as you call it, that essay and that downloadable, they can see exactly what you're talking about, see more examples, and even dig deep into how they can carry that over into their own classroom. Christine, what did you write about? And what about that downloadable resource that you created? My contribution for the book was an article I called Substitute Folder Essentials. I was compelled to write it because as a new teacher, this was something I really struggled with. Uh, while it's important that our classrooms run smoothly, right? This is especially true when we're absent. I took the time to include some things that, you know, we might initially miss in the beginning as we organize our substitute folder plan. Some things such as student allergies, uh, your classroom management plan, helpful students who understand your routines and procedures in your absence, 
uh, your contact list with grade level colleagues, uh, the nurse, the main office administration, any additional services that the, the students are receiving, your class schedules and specials, just different things I thought would be helpful for a sub coming into your classroom, you know, as thorough as you are in your plans really will ensure that your students are safe, your substitute teachers are supported, and that, you know, your students have as a productive day of, of learning as they possibly can. We're all going to have a substitute teacher. It's a great resource. Check it out, folks. What about you, Jesse? What did you write about? I'll start by explaining the downloadable resource for the classroom management plan and then get into, I guess, what I would say is the main point of my short article on classroom management. So the management plan is as simple as I could possibly make it. It's a couple columns. First is my expectations, being really clear, what do I want the behaviors to be in my classroom? Only after you have your expectations laid out and clearly known to you, can you create the systems, procedures you want to have in place your rules, all those things. Those are the how-tos, but they have to match a what and a why beforehand. And so you got to have those expectations laid out first before you get to creating your system. And then a simple two-part checklist to follow, which is yes or no. Am I consistent in modeling, teaching, reteaching, and follow-through? Yes or no. And am I consistent with giving reinforcement when things go right? Yes or no. And imagine that for every expectation and every system you come up with so that kids can meet that expectation. Uh, my article, the, the short title of it was Investment in Your Future, because as a supervisor of teachers, and, and I really make a big deal about classroom management, whether you're new or whether you are a 30-year veteran of teaching, I, I want everybody to be a strong classroom manager in my school, not only because it's best for kids, it's going to give them a feeling of safety, stability, it's going to help a teacher actually manage more sophisticated instructional strategies strategies, if the class is well managed, all of those important things for kids first. But the other part, why it's an investment in your future as a teacher is because if you can get good at classroom management, especially in your first couple of years of teaching, imagine that like your rookie season and you build that foundation. I promise you that for the rest of your teaching career, things will go more easily for you. You will not be that mid-career teacher who is kind of stressed out every single day. And she may have gotten pretty good at some instructional strategies. She might be a great colleague to her teammates and she might love, love kids, but she's always kind of kept this looseness about her classroom management. And so that teacher ends up playing this kind of metaphoric game of whack-a-mole every day with these little behavior problems that pop up in her class because she just never got to the place where she could put systems in place that prevent them or deal with them appropriately. I don't want a teacher to just like prematurely burn out because they're going through that day-to-day -day stress that adds up, like get, invest the time into getting really, really good at classroom management, not just for kids, but for your own wellness <laughs> in this career. This is a sage advice that is really carried throughout the entire first chapter on classroom setup and management. In fact, we had hundreds of people apply to publish in the book, and this particular chapter had a great deal of interest. And Allison and Christine and Jesse contributed to that chapter. They were some of the chosen authors. And the book, again, is called The New Teacher's Guide to Overcoming Common Challenges. It's the first major chapter in the book, and there are nine other common challenges. Check it out. This may be a book that's of interest to you because we know new teachers don't have a lot of time, and they're always looking for new 
resources. It's there for you. It's with Rutledge Publishing. We're going to just take a little break in our discussion, and we're going to have a quick 30-second word association that is going to ask all of our participants today just to make a choice. You make classroom rules, or do students make the rules? Students. Both. Yeah, right down the middle, like a Venn diagram, I say, I make the rules with the students. I love that. Do you prefer pods of desks or single desks in rows? Pods or groupings? Groupings. Groupings. Are you more likely, if you were a beginning teacher, to talk with your mentor about challenges you're having or to talk with your building administrator about the challenges that you're having in the classroom? Mentor. 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 When you're calling, asking questions in a classroom, are you using equity sticks or depending on your memory and just do random calling? Memory. Memory. A little bit of both. So when you're planning your classroom, do you have an assigned seating chart or do you allow for student choice seating? Student choice. Seating chart. I actually use, this isn't one word, but I use uh, a website that spins a wheel, like a um, carnival wheel, and all my students' names are on it. And um, I, it makes groupings for me. So I do random seating, uh, which I change once a week. What is the website that you use, if I might ask? That this might be interesting to our listeners. That website is slippity.net. Great. We're getting all kinds of exciting extra experiences and websites here for our listeners. Lightning round question. Here we go. If you could only give one bit of advice about classroom setup or management, what would you say to a new teacher? Christine. I would definitely say to never stop learning, whether it's through reading books, articles. Uh, If you have an opportunity to observe your peers or veteran teachers, definitely take it. Some of the strategies that I first learned as a beginner teacher was because I went into different classrooms to see their management. And I learned an abundance of things. And all throughout your career, you're going to learn from each other. So never stop learning. Keep learning. Never stop learning. One bit of advice, Jesse. Similar to Christine, intentionally reflect on your classroom management skills, your day-to-day moves. It's pretty easy at the end of a school day to reflect on your teaching of content. We all do that, especially if we felt like the day didn't go well. But please, if you're a first-year teacher or the first few years of teaching, reflect on your classroom management. How long transitions took? Did you get compliance? Did you follow up and reinforce kids? You got to build that foundation. And the only way to do it is to invest time in classroom management as much as you would in the actual instruction. Totally pragmatic. Take us home with this, Allison. One bit of advice about classroom setup and management. Taking ideas from other teachers is not stealing. That's just good teaching. That's my advice. Before you set up your classroom, after you set up your classroom, two months into the school year, go walk around classrooms of veteran teachers at your site. And don't be shy. Just ask if you can come in and get ideas And then ask them a lot of questions about why it's set up the way it is. Like, why did you put your students' desks in groups of three? What's your system for passing out papers? What are you doing as students enter the room at the beginning of class, at the end of class? Just ask a ton of questions of why they made the choices they did. And you'll get tons of ideas. And you'll love some of them. You'll hate some of them. But just take the ones that resonate with you. That is not stealing. That is just good teaching. Like that phrase. That's not stealing. That's just good teaching. 
If you like this community of support and these great ideas that are being shared, check out our webpage, newteachersguide.org. So if our listeners would like to contact you, how can they do so, Jesse? Uh, happy to take an email from any listener or reader. And my email is jcraft at fcps.edu. Thank you. Allison? The quickest way to get in touch with me is probably on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Allison. It's A-L-L-I-S-O-N and then underscore Krasno, K-R-A-S. N-O-W. Thank you. And Christine? I would be happy to take your emails. My email address is C as in cat, Beardsley, my last name. So C-B-E-A-R-D-S-L-E-E. And that's at carteretschools.org. C-A-R-T-E-R-E-T. Thank you guests for spending time with us today. The information you shared opens up discussion about strategies for new teachers as they prepare their classrooms. As for our audience, our listeners, we appreciate you being here today for this podcast, and we hope you'll become a regular follower. Feel free to share feedback with us about this podcast or topics you want to hear about at newteachersguide.org or follow us on Twitter or DM us at newteachertalk1. And remember, as a new teacher, we are here to help you.